Okay, if you would please turn to the book of 1 Peter. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Father, I again ask for the miracle work of Your Spirit that would cause me to say, to say again and say in different ways, no more than what You have said in this text, but to say the clear meaning on the pages of Holy Scripture. And I beg that we not only hear it with sharp minds, but that we receive it because of the work of Your Holy Spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Back in the 1740s, Jonathan Edwards, I think one of the greatest minds in the history of the church, he wrote what I think is the best, the most clear, and definitely the most thorough, he doesn't leave a rock unturned, book ever on the subject of what is the essence of saving faith in a human being. He wrote this book coming out of what we call in American history the First Great Awakening, of which he was one of the main principles that God used along with John Wesley and George Whitfield. Edwards was a theologian. And Edwards saw out of that you had two, what he viewed as extreme errors come out of that. First, because in the awakening, which means this was not man-made, they didn't conjure it up. Edwards and Whitfield and Wesley and the other pastors and preachers and Christians weren't doing anything really different. They were preaching the same gospel and something was happening. People who were baptized in church members for years were becoming Christians. And those who weren't and were blanketly non-Christian, were being converted in an unprecedented way in this land back in the 1740s. And out of that, because what was happening, not only were they being converted, but there were, there were visible, radical conversions where, where people, while preaching's going on, couldn't help what was happening on inside of them be expressed outwardly. It made some people nervous. Uh, In other words, see, what happens internally 
in human beings. Forget about, we're not just talking about being a Christian here. Just being a human being. If someone comes and knocks on your door and tells you that your 22-year-old child was just killed in Iraq, you might collapse on the floor. That's what emotions do. Okay, this kind of stuff, what happened to people? They would feel their desperateness for salvation so deeply like they never felt and be crying. Okay, etc., etc. You had that going on. Well, two things happened. First, there was a response against emotionalism by especially a lot of the intellectual elite class of clergy and just poo-pooed the whole thing. Just get your doctrine right and let's do it the way we always did it. And then you had, because there, was, there were emotional responses, you had some people concentrate on the falling on the ground. You see, the falling on the ground is not the same as the news that your child was killed in Iraq. Edwards looked and he saw both of these are in error. He came in the middle. He did not deny. He saw that yes, the work of the Spirit with differing personalities may cause physical manifestations. And he saw that if you concentrate and think, we're going to work for the physical manifestation, try to, like me this morning trying to get you all pumped up. Come on. That's why I never do that. Yeah, I, I was at a church once and that was like, I mean, how do I pump people up? How do I make the woman fall on the ground? You don't. Just be truthful with the woman or with the gospel and let God work. So, but Edwards came down in the middle and ultimately, and I think he's dead right. Look, here, here's the message of Edwards' book. You can have, and a lot of us saw this in the mid-1990s with the so-called Toronto Blessing Movement, Shake and Bake. You can have physical manifestations in religion in the name of Christ and not have saving faith and die in your sin. And you can have on the other side all your T's crossed. You can have and affirm with your intellect the doctrines of Christ and not have saving faith. That's his book titled The Religious Affections. Well, why do I mention that? Edwards, for this book, it's, I read it in his two volumes, so it's really tiny print. If you put it in a normal book today, I think it's got to be reaching 400 pages. Like I said, he didn't leave any rocks unturned. And boy, did he quote hundreds of scriptures that deal with the issue. But there was one text that he saw as the main text of this whole book that he opened up with and that he's basically unfolding for 400 pages. And it's our text this morning. Verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Because verses 8 and 9, as we'll see this morning, it is the heart of what a Christian is. It's about affections. It is about emotions, feelings, that they are essential for what a true Christian is. A heart change when it comes to being saved in Christ. A heart change is not optional.
Faith in Christ is not merely an intellectual decision. If I can persuade you with my salesman learning, say a prayer. Ask Jesus intellectually to come into your heart. So, let's remember the context here now. Verses 8 and 9 come into context. The whole book for one, but the smaller context is what we have seen. Starting with verse 3. So verses 3 to 9 is a, is a whole context. Remember how he started off. Peter's writing to Christians. And he says, you're a Christian because this is what's happened. God the Father caused you to be born again. You didn't do it. And His work of regeneration, changing your heart, produced in you something. A living hope. Hope in what? A hope that is predominantly future. Beyond the grave. It's an inheritance. Look at it right there. Verses 3 to 5. It's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, kept, restored. It's there waiting for you. And now, verses 8 and 9 this morning, they flow out of the context of verses 6 and 7. What we saw last week. That even though new birth produces this living hope, and he says, thus, in the truth of the gospel, in God's work in your life, you rejoice. But we saw you rejoice even though. Even though you may be screaming. Even though you will be experiencing grief in this life trials in this life because God loves you. He has a purpose. He's molding you. So we're in this life of tension. That's last week's sermon. How do you rejoice when He died? You don't fake it. You do bawl. You do cry. You do feel. And we saw rejoicing is something deeper. Out of that now, our text, what's Peter doing? He's saying, this is the faith that rejoices. He says, let me unfold it. Though, and he's talking to us too this morning, though you have not seen Jesus. Have you? Physically? If you're a believer, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Okay, don't miss it. Jesus saves. He did the work. We are saved by grace through faith. That's the question now though. What is that faith? Peter answers, it's verses 8 and 9. That, that's why he's so clear that he says, this inner dynamic going on. Loving Him. Believing in Him. And thus the fruit. Rejoicing in that reality. He says, 
leads to verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. He doesn't say, now here's the thing, I want to think about, okay, what's he doing? Peter does not tell them, aspire to verses 8 and 9. It's not what he's doing at this point. Now, trust me, in the book, he's going to start to do this kind of stuff. Right here, he doesn't say, yeah, hey, you're Christian, good. Won't you, won't you aspire to be like verses 8 and 9? He assumes that if you're a Christian, there's something about verses 8 and 9 that is in you somewhere. It's got to be. Or in his mind, you haven't been born again. See, why is he doing this? Peter knows how hard life is. Not just can be, is and will be. He's made that clear in verses 6 and 7. He'll make it clear throughout the rest of the letter. One of the other themes of this letter, it's about suffering. So he knows that. And Peter knows this. He knows that in every genuine believer, the opposite inclinations, the opposite inclinations of verses 8 and 9 remain with you. It's called your flesh. He knows that to be born again means we're in a battle. To be born again means God, the Holy Spirit, has come to dwell within your heart in regeneration. And you have brand new taste buds for God in Jesus Christ, which were impossible before new birth. And He knows God in His infinite wisdom for a time has left us in this mortal body and we're in a battle with the flesh and with the world and with the devil. So why does He tell us? So that we will know as you wake up every day what the standard is. You'll know what the standard of what's supposed to be happening in your heart is. It's not your spouse. It's not the Christian around you. It's not the world. It's not the culture. It's verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. He's saying, that's the standard of the essence of faith. That is a faith that saves. By Him stating it so clearly in verses 8 and 9, it's mercy. It's God's grace that Peter did it. It's a tool. It's the weapon that we fight with in the fight of faith day after day. He's saying, believer, here's your pursuit. Here's your battle. Fighting against your natural inclinations of the flesh. Love. Love Jesus. Not the one you make up. The one... Pictured in Scripture. Love Jesus. Believe in Him. Pursue real happiness. Joy. On purpose. In Him. It's first and foremost. That is the essence of Christianity. Is first and foremost an issue of the heart.
not external. The external flows from the internal. So, let's look very slowly and very carefully at the essence of faith according to Peter in our text. Notice the beginning of verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. This implies a daily, because in the original, in the Greek, this is a present tense verb, which in the Greek, unlike English, brings with it not merely time, present, but kind of action in the verb. Loving Him means ongoing, continuous. Which implies this daily, personal affection for the object of which you love, which is Jesus whom you don't see. He says this is what a Christian is. Remember, Peter's writing this 30 years earlier. Peter stood by that fire one night and he denied knowing Jesus three times and went away bawling. Three days after that, a couple ladies came running up to the room where they were in Jerusalem and said, They've taken Jesus' body! And Peter took off and ran. saw it wasn't there. Later that night, Jesus showed up in the room. He saw him again. And He saw Him over and over again for the next five weeks before He ascended and talked with Him. Now, He writes to these believers in these five provinces and to us 2,000 years later, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. How is that possible? The answer is through the Word that came to you. Through the truth of the message called the Gospel. The Gospel is a proclamation that God in Christ was reconciling many to Himself. And if you believe it, if you look at Scripture and say, I know that's me. Because I love Him and thus that Gospel which are inseparable. And it happens through the Word. The message that Peter delivered. You love Him here. The word love here does not mean the kind of love that you do if you send in money to, for starving children in some village in Africa. That is a type of love. That's a benevolent love. That is, I'm going to love them. Or your friend, you're helping them out. Let me cook you dinner. Something, you just had a bait. I'm going to love you. That's not what he means here. And Jesus doesn't need you to do that. 
He means the kind of love that when you view something, have something, think of something, that would bring me happiness. Could be alcohol. Could be your favorite drug. Could be relationship. Could be food. We love in that way. So he says, though you don't see him, you love him. Means, because remember, context back to verse 3 God produced it. You saw the truth not only with your mind, but by the Spirit, have embraced Him, Christ, because of the Spirit, as if that's true, there could be no greater news in delight for me now unto all eternity. That's what He means. You love Him. Let me take a chance and quote an old dead guy, Jonathan Edwards, as I opened up this sermon with. Just bear with him. Uh, it's hard for most of us present day, numbed now, dumbed down Christians to deal with such language, but see if you can. And I admit, he's not for everybody. He's got some very long sentences at times. But Edwards speaking about, the, what does this mean? What is this love for Christ? That, which is interesting from faith in Christ. What is this? He says, quote, There is a divine and superlative glory in Jesus and the work of redemption. It's an excellency that is of a vastly higher kind than other things. There is a glory in the contents of the Gospel which greatly distinguishes them from all that is earthly and temporal. He is spiritually enlightened, truly, who apprehends and sees And I like his term here. Listen to him. Or has a sense of this glory in Jesus and the Gospel. This person, the born again person, does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There is not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. There is not only a judging that God is gracious, but there is a sense of how agreeable this most desirous God is based upon the beauty of His divine nature. Though you don't see Him, you have a sense of Him. You, you, you love Him. Then He goes on, notice. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. The, the not now means during this mortal life. You don't. 
He's coming back. He will come back. He has been resurrected. The eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, having never ceased to be fully divine, became fully human. And you will see Him. Everybody will see Him. And you want to be on one side when you do. He's coming back. But though now Christian in this life, you don't see Him, but you believe in Him. It means you trust in Him. And I'm, again, I'm careful about doing this, but here I think it's important. The word believe in Greek, okay, pestuo, this verb, before the New Testament was never used. I mean, it was, the word was used. It was never used with the preposition ace or into. With the New Testament, it, that's where this idea, these two words are coming together. As always, believe this, believe that, and other preposition. But now with Christ, you have come to believe into Him. Because His point is this is personal. There's a difference between believing that something is true and believing in someone. See, a five-year-old little boy believes, trusts in Daddy. Not merely, what do you believe about Daddy? Is that him? That's him. He's got that color hair. He, no, he clings to Daddy. He's out there at a, a carnival and feels nervous. And he's five feet away and he, oh, he got, oh, where's Daddy? And then oh, I see him. He clings. He trusts. It's a relationship. It's an implicit heart gravitation toward Daddy. So, Peter has said here, here's faith. You don't see Him. That's right. Physically. But you love Him. You don't now see Him in His life, but you believe in Him. You're attracted in that love and you trust in Him and His Word. And notice, something comes out of that called joy. Let's read verse 8 again very carefully and get the flow. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy or joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy flows out of love for and trust in Jesus. Joy is that deep down good feeling that comes from loving and trusting in who Jesus is to you personally. Remember how Jesus preaching one of His parables, Matthew 13, He says, verse 44, quote, The kingdom of heaven... It's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then covered it up. Then, in his joy, he sells all that he has to buy the field.
That's Jesus describing what it is to come to Him. To come into the kingdom. Unless you're born again, you can't enter that kingdom. He's describing what happens if you're born again. Like Peter says in verse 3, that's the evidence you have. He's a treasure. Joy is intricately connected and inseparable from love and faith in Jesus. I mean, can you imagine saying, hey, I I love at this particular restaurant these particular kinds of fajitas. Do you have joy when you eat them? No. No joy whatsoever. No good feet. No, I'm just telling you I love them. It doesn't make any sense. It's like saying, I love getting... Hear it, daughter. I love getting away from the children. (laughs) To just be with my wife on a date and enjoy and lie down in bed at night and just hold each other and talk. I I love being with her. You get any joy in that loving being with her? No. Oh, oh, man. We're going on vacation into the mountains this, this week for, va- for Thanksgiving. And little kids, if they love vacation and believe in Dad, trust Him that we're going on vacation, they do what my little six-year-old did. He packed his bag a week ago. <laughs> and and, and, and two, his suitcase and his backpack bag. And he says, Dad, I'm ready to go. Do you have any joy in doing that, Matthew? If he would have said, of course he does. It is the joy that moves him. You can't separate it from his faith that it's true, laid up for him. There's a mountain cabin coming. You can't separate him. This joy is not flippant, though. It's not flippant. It's the joy in the context of the sobriety of last week's sermon. Let me just give, I want to give you one illustration. I'm going to read a little bit. Give you one illustration of this joy that the Bible's talking about. These are, I'm going to read a few quickly. Some letters written behind the old. Iron Curtain, Communism, Communist Bloc, back in the 1950s under the Soviet Union. First, Marie is writing to fellow Christians, you know, in the underground church that Richard Vrumbram publishes in his book, Tortured for Christ, who himself was tortured and imprisoned in the 50s in Romania. And at one time, he actually came to our Senate Judiciary Committee. I don't know why, but he testified what was going on by taking his shirt off and showing the deep scar wounds of his back. Okay. First, a letter from a Christian sister named Maria writing to the church. She writes, In my former letter, I wrote you about the atheist girl, Varia. Now I hurry to tell you, my beloved ones, about our great joy. Varia has received Christ as her personal Savior, witnessing openly before everybody about this. We went together with Varia to the assembly of the godless. Although I warned her to be reserved, it was useless. 
after the common singing of the communist hymn, singing in which Varia did not participate, she came forward before the whole assembly. She implored everybody to give up the way of sin and to come to Christ. Everybody became silent. And nobody interrupted her. When she finished speaking, she sang with her splendid voice the whole Christian hymn, I am not ashamed to proclaim the Christ who died to defend His commandments and the power of His cross. And afterwards, afterwards, they took our Varia away. Another letter, a few months later. Maria writes to the fellow Christians, When I saw Varia yesterday, she was thin, pale, beaten. Only the eyes shone with the peace of God and with an unearthly joy. This is what Peter's speaking of here. Yes, my dear ones, those who have not experienced the wonderful peace of Christ cannot understand it, but how happy are those who have this peace. For us who are in Christ, no sufferings and frustrations should stop us I asked through the iron bars, Faria, don't you regret what you did? No, she answered. And if they would free me, I would go again and I would tell them about the great love of Christ. Don't think that I suffer. Don't think that I suffer. I am very glad that the Lord loves me so much. And gives me the joy to endure for His name. Later now, Varia writes a letter to Maria. Dear Maria, I cannot describe our life. You know it. The work is difficult and sister so-and-so's health is bad. I must work for both me and her. I finish first my work and then I help my sister. Our food is just as yours, very scarce, but it is not this that I wished to write to you. My heart praises and thanks God that He showed me through you the way to salvation. Now, being on this way, my life has a purpose and I know where to go and for whom I suffer. The sufferings which God sends us only strengthen us more and more in the faith in Him. My heart is so full that the grace of God overflows. At work, they curse and they punish me and give me extra work because I cannot be silent. But I must say to everybody what the Lord has done for me. One final letter. Maria, I mean, Varia writes to Maria. Dear Maria, I thank you for your motherly care for me. We received all you have prepared for us. I thank you for the most valuable thing. For the Bible. Since the Lord revealed to me the deep mystery of His holy love, I consider myself to be the happiest in the world. The persecutions which I have to endure, I consider as a special grace. 
I am glad that the Lord gave me from the first days of my faith the great happiness to suffer for Him. I and sister so-and-so kiss you all. When we are sent to the next concentration camp, perhaps we will have the opportunity to write to you again. Don't worry about us. We are glad and joyful because our reward is great in heaven. Your Varia. Vrombren concludes the letters this way. This is the last letter from Varia, the young communist girl who found Christ, witnessed about Him, and was sentenced to slave labor. She was never heard of again. But her beautiful love and witness for Christ shows the spiritual beauty of the suffering, faithful, underground church in one-third of the world under communism. What's going on there? Verses 8 and 9. Varia mercifully came to taste and realize the depth of her sinfulness. She came to realize that there is a hell that she deserved. And there is a free offer of eternal life to enjoy Christ after this very brief temporal world forever. That's what she came to realize. And it is that. That is what explains what Peter calls joy. Don't have words. Inexpressible. Unutterable. Filled with glory. Just, just, you can, that, that's, that's the infinite. That's the eternal. And we struggle to find finite illustrations. But if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you get out of the car and you, you're 50 feet away and you still don't even know what's right over there and you walk up to it. Oh, I love doing this. I remember the first time I saw it and I love taking people who I know how, know how to worship creation, which is idolatry. Or you could worship God through what He created. So I took my friend before we got married, he's my best man, and to the Grand Canyon. And I knew he would get the appropriate response. Because we're very much alike in many ways. And that is, he knew how to shut his mouth. <laughs> he knew once you... There's nothing to say. Because you feel like, what, what do I say? Big hole? You know that it's almost demeaning. Oh yeah, it's great. And, and trust me, there are hearts that are so shriveled up. They, it's nice. I'm hungry. Let's go eat. And they do it every Sunday morning throughout the world. They do it every Sunday morning. He says... The saving faith that's going on in people that is saving the means through which they're being saved is when there's a reality of a joy that's unutterable. 
Let me just put in parenthesis. Thank God for His mercy of music which He created and which He instructs to use to somehow, never fully, never perfectly be able to express something of the joy that gives utterance to it in the community. And this joy is not only at times just stunning silence. It is a joy that is, see it, filled with glory. It's a passive voice. The joy itself doesn't do something. It's a joy because it's a joy that somehow it got filled with something. Glory. It's the glory. It's the presence of God. All three of those going together. The Spirit comes. Something happens. I see Him. Though I don't see Him and I love Him and I believe in Him and there's this joy and it's Holy Spirit's presence who's the glory of God. That's what verse 8 says. How do we apply that? Peter does not tell us to do anything yet. Remember, he doesn't tell us to do anything in this letter for the first 12 verses. He just lays out before us in a nutshell the essence of the Gospel and the Christian life. He says, that's what it is, Christian. So what do we do with it? This is why I think he did it. And this is what I'm going to say I think we're supposed to do with this. When we wake up every morning, we are to go to the mirror of verses 8 and 9 and check the spiritual condition of our face. That's it. And we will see our hair is messed up and our breath stinks. We will see because I'm looking at the mirror, boy, I've drifted. Do I love Him right now? Am I experiencing my heart loving and trusting what He says in His Word? Or am I loving food more? Or my favorite team? Or my spouse? Or my children? More than I love Jesus. See the question? Okay, what do we do? How do we live? How do we fight the fight of faith? Because Peter says, this is what it is. It's loving Him. Trusting Him. And thus, there's a real sense, feeling of joy somehow in Him through which we are obtaining, see it? The outcome of that faith, the salvation of your souls. Everything is at stake. Or put it this way, how do we obey Hebrews chapter 3 saying the same thing? 
verses 12 to 14, where the Holy Spirit says to us through the writer to the Hebrews, take care. That means be vigilant. Take care, Christian, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving, opposite of Though you don't see Him, you believe in Him. An unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the mirror of verse 8. To fall away from the living God. Because we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. How do we do that? Chapter 1 of Peter, verse 8, shows us Daily, that, ooh, my heart, my faith, my hope, my love is growing dim. Okay, okay, got it. What do we do? Even though you don't see Him, is what we do. We have to. See Him. You think it would be better if you woke up. Instead of going to the bathroom looking at, I don't want to do that one. Deal with verse 8 and 9. I I just need Jesus physically to be sitting on the couch. No, you don't. We need to see Him in an infinitely more important way than that on a daily basis. You do realize thousands of people saw Him physically, heard Him preached, preach, and died. And are waiting till this day to be thrown into hell at Judgment Day. It wasn't enough. We need to see Him in the most important way possible. Let me just give you one example to start with. The way Paul prays for Christians. In Ephesians chapter 1, he writes to them and Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What do you pray in Paul? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what really is the hope to which He has called you which are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. He sounds like he's copying Peter. There's probably Peter copying him, but we won't, that's a personal thing. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Paul's point and Peter's point is that in the preaching of the Gospel. Christ can be seen. Seen in a way that is much more important 
than if you ever saw him walking the shores of Galilee. Listen to how Paul talks. He's writing to the church at Rome. He hasn't met them yet. I'm going to stop by and say howdy to you. I want you guys to help me financially because I want to go to some lands where they haven't heard the gospel yet. Why, Paul? This is, this is what's in his head. Quote, the end of the book of Romans. Those who have never... Why do I want to preach the gospel? Because of this. So that those who have never been told will see. And those who have never heard will understand. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians <coughs> chapter 4, verse 6. Let me just say, the context of Paul writing 1 Corinthians 4 has to do with the written Scripture. He says, those who have not been born again, the Spirit has not come and brought them to Christ. My fellow Jews who were like me, Paul, before conversion, they read the Bible. And their eyes are blinded. But if you're a believer, he writes in verse 6, for God, the one who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul's point is that God's Holy Spirit shines the light in our hearts as the light is shined on the pages of this book where God has clearly revealed His Son, whom we're desperate to love and believe in by seeing with the eyes of our heart. It comes through the Word of God. When the Gospel's preached, when it's pondered, when it's read, when it's thought about, when it's prayed over, we see Christ more clearly than if we saw Him walking into the temple 2,000 years ago. Because He, God, the Holy Spirit, has given us four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He is giving these Gospels. The Holy Spirit did it the way He wanted so that we would have the portrait of Christ that we need. And so He gave us the apostles, the epistles, unfolding more thoroughly the meaning of the portrait of Christ in the Gospels. That's what we're so desperate to see. The way we really see Him the way that we, when we realize I don't sense Him, is to say, God, help me desire Him while we pick up the Word in its various forms of reading, hearing it preached, taught, memorized, as we look at the Word. So, as we see that the joy of faith is growing dim. This is, look, if, if, if you're not a Christian, then you cannot relate to this. 
If you are and have been one longer than one month, you, you should be able to relate to it. You know what it is like. I, I see that mirror. Praise God. That's real. That's a miracle of God. I know that. I've tasted of that, of that loving Him at varying degrees and in varying ways. And I know what it's like to compare this day where my heart's at from three days ago. Feeling-wise, you feel a million miles away. Lord, what do you do? You do what the deer does when he's really thirsty. You pant. Your tongue's dry as the deer pants for the water brook. So my soul pants for you, O God. And so as you pant, you pick up the Word like Psalm 119 verse 18 and you pray it. Listen to the text. God, open my eyes. Why? So that I may behold wonderful things in Your Word. Okay, let's put those two together. God has spoken clearly once for all in Scripture. Then why pray, God, open my eyes? Why not just read it? Well, I mean, just, you must read, and you must read well according to the, to the way that you read particular languages and their language conventions. Okay? In English, subject comes before a verb, object comes after it. You just, without thinking about it, if you know how to read, you basically do that. Just read well. You have to do that. And the psalmist knows it. The psalmist, because this is in Hebrew, can read Hebrew. He's not saying, tell me what it means. He's saying, God, open my eyes so that what I see in the text, I know what it means. Let my heart love it. That's what he's saying. So that I will see it as wonderful. Is that making sense? I mean, oh, listen to how Paul, Paul write, here's Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 3. And gosh, it's stunning. And it's simple. That's why so many of us just miss it. He says to them and us, when you read what he wrote, that's what he's talking about. When you pick up Paul's letter, and read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. That is stunning. Paul just said that the most important, the most glorious, the most infinitely mind-boggling Mysteries in the world can be gotten at through opening up Paul's epistle and reading it. But, don't miss it. We just read it. A couple paragraphs before that, 
Paul said, remember? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. So which is it? Paul, which is it? Do I have to read really well? Do I have to really pay attention to the text and just read it for what it means instead of trying to get God to tell me something underneath the text? Don't ever do that. It means what it says. But, but Paul, do I, do I do chapter 3 or do I do chapter 1? Do I read it, decipher it, say, it seems to be the flow? Or do I pray to you that you would open up the eyes so I'll see? The answer is yes. The way you see what the human author, Paul, or Peter, meant is read very carefully. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Many non-Christians have a more accurate interpretation of particular texts than Christians. Okay? But, what we're desperate for is for God to constantly work on our hearts so that what is clearly there, we won't butcher. And say, can't be that. You don't mean that, Lord. Because every one of our hearts will do that to the extent that the mercy of God by His Spirit is not softening our heart to welcome what's there. I'm candidate number one. Open my eyes. As I close, this, is, this isn't going... I want to just show you. That I went to Paul, coming back, and we're closing. This is what's going on in Peter's mind. A few sentences later, right there, we call it chapter 2. Peter is going to say, and watch, here, notice his foundation. He's talking to Christians. He says, since, since it's true that you've experienced verses 8 and 9. He, said, he says, in other words, since it's true that you, this is not merely intellectual, since you have tasted that the Lord is good, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He writes in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, like newborn babies, Peter writes, like newborn babies, long, long means desire, it's the word epithemia, long, desire the pure milk of the Word that by it you may grow up unto salvation because or since you have tasted that the Lord is good. You hear that? If anyone ever told you you cannot command people to desire, they don't know the Bible. So, Peter's saying, if you've been born again, the reality in some way is in your heart of truly loving Jesus, trusting Him, and that real joy is there. If you've tasted that the Lord is good. And because that's true, He says to every one of us, every morning, look at the mirror of verse 8, and desire. Desire like a screaming baby in the middle of the night for mommy's breast. Desire. 
the Word. Our only hope of persevering faith. Let's pray. What a glorious gospel, Lord. That you have not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And that you invite all who have ears to hear and eyes to see, to hear and to see and to be saved. And that those of us who find ourselves having been saved in You, we find that we didn't even do that. You did it. We find that You are the One who mercifully took a hard-hearted, God-belittling heart and caused it to see and to love the Gospel. To love You, Lord Jesus. To love Your Father. And that as we hear You command, desire the Word, we know that we're hopeless. <laughs> Unless you do it. But we know that you now will do it. Because you have taught us to pray. Daily, open my eyes. That I may behold, see the beauty that is actually there. And be drawn again back to verse 8 of First Peter 1. So now may we by the mercy of the cross and the power of the Spirit, sing like never before how great You are.